This morning we're in 2 Peter. We've been going through this letter of the Apostle Peter to some scattered believers throughout Asia Minor. Uh, and he has given them a very serious warning about the infiltration of false teachers coming into the church. A huge warning. Uh, he's painted in the first three verses of chapter 2 uh, a portrait of what these false teachers are going to be like and look like and sound like. Uh, and now he, what he does today and what we're going to look at this morning and what Ben read for us, he's going to show us this. That is, they're not going to get away with it. They're not going to get away with it. They think they are, but be assured that they and, and anyone who opposes Christ will not get away with it. That is the emphasis of this section we're looking at. People think they're going to get away with it. God's not accountable. I'm not accountable to God. But what we see in this section is that anyone, false teachers, anyone who opposes God will face God's wrath. This is a tough sermon this morning in 2 Peter. But let me look back at the verses that were read to you earlier. And it actually begins for us at the end of verse 3, talking about the false teachers specifically. But he says, Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That's the end of verse 3. And then into verse 4, for if, change that word to since because it's not in doubt, it's since, it's that idea, it's since God did not spare angels when they sinned. What he's doing here, he's, he's giving some events in the Old Testament to prove the point that he's going to make in this passage. For since God did not spare angels when they sinned and cast them into hell, Verse 5, and did not, and if he did not, put in, just insert that, and if he did not spare the ancient world, talking about the days of Noah and the flood. And in verse 6, he says the third event that he's going to highlight, and since he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. And then he inserts this preservation of a righteous person, Lot, in verse 7. And then he comes down to verse 9. You know, you have your if, 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 then. Then tells you his point. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That chapter, by the way, those verses from 4 to 10a is one, or one sentence in the Greek, one long sentence. But he makes two points. He makes a lot of, you can make a lot of observations from, what, from that section, but two main points are found in verse 9. That is his point right there. God will absolutely punish those who oppose him. You see that in 9b. And then in 9a, God will protect those who belong to him. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and the Lord will keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So, we're talking this morning about judgment. This is not a popular subject, you know that, when you're talking about eternal judgment especially. 
not a popular message at all in our times. In fact, people would say, to talk like this this morning is out of step with the times. And yes, it is out of step with the times, but I believe it's very biblical, very biblical. And we are not speaking this morning about trying to keep in step with the times. We're talking this morning about what does the Bible say. But this whole concept of judgment has been uh, seldom, ta- it's seldom talked about, and you know that, even by those who claim to believe the Bible. Um, and I think about one historian I heard about who said this, quote, hell disappeared and no one noticed, end of quote. And that's true. That's very insightful because we don't hear much about hell and it has disappeared and no one seems to be bothered by that. In fact, if you start talking about it, they say you're archaic. You're talking about ancient stuff. You're talking about things from the past. You're out of date. You're a hellfire and brimstone preacher and all of that kind of stuff. Well, the point is, regardless of how this doctrine has been abused and all these things by people, it is a true doctrine. The doctrine of hell is very much a biblical doctrine. There is very much a theology of hell in the Bible and we have to face that reality. In fact, your salvation, the salvation word makes no sense if there is no judgment. This communion table makes no sense if there is no judgment that we have escaped by Christ. You understand? He is our Savior. Why? From what? From judgment. That is not, not because I have problems not because I'm unhappy, not because I make mistakes. No, he saves me from the wrath of God to come, which I deserve because I'm a sinner. And that's why this doctrine matters, because it's the reason that Christ came to deliver me from this impending judgment that all of humanity is under, unless unless they know Jesus Christ. And so, he does cite these three events, this judgment on angels, this judgment on the ancient world, this judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And listen, uh, Peter does not stutter here. He does not, he is certain about this. He is certain about this judgment that awaits those who oppose God. Those false teachers, he is going to tell us, they're going to face judgment for their false heresies. They're going to face the righteous judgment of God one day, as well as anyone who opposes God. He speaks with authority, not Peter's authority. He goes to the scripture to show us why he knows this is true. And so, that is his point here. He wants, to, he wants to prove that to you. He wants to prove that to his readers. Because his readers are thinking, false teachers, they, they think they are just getting away with something. In fact, that's what you see in the end of verse 3a. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They think God's judgment is asleep. Peter's about to tell him, no, God's judgment is not asleep. God is not idle. God has had their judgment in mind way back. 
The principle of judgment, the principle of those who oppose God goes way back, even way back in Old Testament history, way back. And he's showing them that in these verses today that we're going to be looking at. You remember in verses 1 through 3, false prophets arose among the Jews, just as they will also be false prophets in the church, false teachers in the church. And they're going to, they're going to introduce secretly heresies, denying the master who bought them. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. They're going to be very popular. They're going to be very popular, and they're going to malign the truth, and they're going to be very greedy, and they're going to merchandise you, and they're going to take advantage of you, and they're going to get, try to get rich off of you. We've talked about all that in the weeks past. And in chapter 1, he says you better get your, 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 your doctrine of the assurance of salvation down. You better know that you belong to Christ. You better understand the doctrine of justification and sanctification. In chapter 3, he says you better understand the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. These false teachers want to deny a second coming of Christ because you know something? Attached to the second coming of Christ is judgment. And... It's convenient to deny that doctrine of the second coming of Christ when you don't want there to be any penalty for your life. So from a human perspective, these false teachers have it made. And so you would think, God, why? Why do the wicked prosper? They're wealthy. They have a big following. They're popular they are uh, in step with the culture. Um, they say things people like, people flock to them, those kinds of statements. Don't you ask that question? Isn't that a question you ask as a believer sometimes? God, why do the wicked prosper? I do. I look at the news and I go, oh my goodness, why are those people, why are they still living, God? Why haven't you struck them down? God, why haven't you brought, God, why don't you do something? Why do they just keep getting more influential all the time? Why do they get wealthier? Why, I'm not talking about false teachers. I'm talking about all the ungodly, including false teachers. We, we ask that question. We ask that question. It boggles our minds as believers. Job 21.7, let's go way back. Job 21.7, why do the wicked still live, Job asked. Why do they continue on, and why do they become so powerful? That was his question, among many questions that Job asked. In Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah says, God, I would plead my case with you. I would discuss matters of justice with you. And here's one, God. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? That, that's your question? That's mine? Habakkuk 1, 3 through 4. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, they ignore the law. The just, justice is never upheld, for the wicked surround us. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. God, why do the wicked prosper? 
That's the question. And if you've ever read Psalm 73, which I encourage you to read, it's a great psalm where the psalmist Asaph, who's a choir director from Israel, is, is comparing his situation to all the wicked around him. God, my feet came close to stumbling. I was confused. When I look around, I see the wicked, those who hate you, and they seem to have lives of ease compared to me. There is no pain in their death. They seem to have all the prosperity and all the money they need. God, I'm struggling. I'm suffering. What is wrong with this picture, God? That is the question that Asaph asked for 16 verses until he comes down to verse 16 and says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I worshipped. And then I perceived, get this, their end. And he begins to go into then the judgment that awaits them one day. Speaks of their future judgment. Peter is doing the same thing. These guys are going to be popular and greedy and successful in the eyes of the world. But he's saying, this is what awaits them and anyone else who opposes God. And that's what you have to see. And you have to have a biblical perspective on this like Asaph needed. He had to get before God to see their end. And so Peter is giving proof by giving these three incidents of God's judgment to illustrate his point. So that's kind of where this text goes. And guess what? Verse 4 is as far as we'll get today. We only got time to do one. Verse 4. We're going to talk about this rebellion of angels. This rebellion of angels. You see in verse 4, for God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. How do I know, Peter's saying, how do I know God is going to judge those who oppose him and misrepresent him? How do I know? Because he's done it before. He did it to exalted creatures called angels. And if he did it to exalted creatures called angels, think what he's going to do to mortal man. Look what he says. At some time in history, these exalted creatures called angels, that's what verse 4 is saying, which were created by God, angel means messengers of God, they were created to serve him and to praise him. Some of them rose up and sinned against God. Peter says, then God judged them. That's all this verse says. God judged them. And I told you to put the word since in there because there's no doubt this happened. If sounds almost like there's some doubt. But since, if, in the, if can be replaced with the word since in this verse, God did not exempt these exalted creatures from judgment. Don't think he's going to spare anybody else either. God did not spare them and... I think it's interesting that, and maybe just speculating some, as one commentator pointed out though, these false teachers were, may have been very prominent people, been, have become very prominent people, influential com- people in the community, 
And Peter just wants them to understand that no matter your position in the eyes of man, some people take security in that. They think, everybody likes me. I must be doing something right. Everybody approves of me. I must be doing what I'm doing is okay. There's a deception that goes into that. You start believing your own press releases and, oh, you start, you know, you start getting this high, high opinion of yourself. He is saying to them, it doesn't matter what your opinion is of you or what the opinion of other, others is of you. You are not exempt from God's judgment if you oppose God. Because God is not a respecter of persons. God punishes all sin. No matter what your place in society and politics, you can be the president, a king, a wealthy tycoon, it doesn't matter. All you can come up with all these great ideas for the world and all these great ideas of what you're going to do for the world and God sits in heaven and laughs, Psalm 2 says. The nations roar and God laughs because the world thinks it's in control and God says no. So what exactly happened in verse 4? I'm just going to take some time to show you this. I've taught this before, but let me just come from a different angle this morning. What did they do in verse 4? What was the sin against God that brought this judgment on these angels? Peter doesn't give us a lot of information in verse 4 about what that sin was. Um, Obviously, it's something they knew about. Obviously, it's, it's something that's in the Old Testament and they were aware of because of the Old Testament. The other two events that he's going to mention are in the Old Testament, so we assume he's talking about something that's in the Old Testament, something that they were familiar with, something they were familiar with, possibly even according to Jewish tradition, that the angels did. Two interpretations have been offered about what the sin of the angels was. First, it could have been, this is one interpretation that several people hold. Uh, It's the interpretation that says the sin he is talking about here was the original sin of, of angels back before the creation of the world, back during Satan's rebellion against God, when, when he was... Uh, the. The highest of the angels and he rebelled against God and Revelation 12 tells us he took a third of the angels with him they became demons fallen angels some people say that is what he is talking about I don't think that's the correct view on that verse I think the more correct view and stronger view in my opinion and the traditional view of even the Jews on how to interpret this verse or how to interpret uh, these events would be the opinion or the viewpoint that this refers back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. In the, an event that took place prior to the flood, when we're told that, that um, the sons of God, a term used for angels in the Old Testament, were attracted to human women and cohabitated with them, bearing an offspring that corrupted the human race. That's an overview of that position. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Like I said, I I taught this. I'm not going to go into that much detail on it. But look in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, verse 18. It says this. 
For Christ also died for sins. This is verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And what he did prior to his resurrection is he went into the spirit, he went into this prison. Notice in verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. I believe that's referring to angels because what he does is he says, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. That takes me back to at least Genesis 6. That these spirits in prison have some reference to Genesis chapter 6, the days of Noah. Um, Jesus goes down into this prison where these angels are and proclaims to them his victory over them. Very important because, you know, as they're sitting there waiting, Satan is hoping to somehow keep Jesus from dying on a cross, rising again, so that you and I can have forgiveness for our sin. And the angels may have thought, wow, we've done it, we killed him. But he goes down to that prison and proclaims to them, no, I'm alive. I'm alive. Some of that speculation, for sure, this is kind of a mysterious passage in some ways, but turn to Jude chapter 6. Excuse me, Jude verse 6. Jude verse 6. Jude verse 6. And angels, verse 6 of Jude. Jude is the very next, it's next to the last book of the Bible. It's one, probably one page in most Bibles. And angels did not, notice verse 6, and angels did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for, ju for the judgment of the great day. I would refer back to what I just read to you in 1 Peter chapter 3 and say that's the spirits that are in prison, okay? And notice what else he says. He compares what they did to the other event in verse 7. Just as, see that? Just as. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. These angels went after human flesh, strange flesh. These fallen angels went after strange flesh, human flesh, human women. Sodom and Gomorrah, it was human flesh going after angels. You follow me? So you've got that comparison there taking place. Two abominations in the eyes of God. You've got, and we'll talk more about Sodom and Gomorrah in the weeks to come, but I'm trying to show you right now, what was the sin of the angels, of these fallen angels he's talking about that are right now in bonds and chains and are in uh, uh, hell? We'll see that in just a moment. Now turn over to Genesis chapter 6. That's the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. This is women being born to these families. Verse 2, the sons of God. Job tells us the sons of God are angels. Saw the daughters of men, 
were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he, is also, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. At that point, or at some point in there, God pronounces a judgment. We'll see this judgment next week. The judgment on the ancient world through the flood. But you see, what happened was, it says Nephilim were, were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Jewish tradition, and I believe the passages that I took you to earlier, support the point that this is the sin right here. This is the sin that these fallen angels committed that put them in this place called Tartarus or hell. I'll take you back there and show you that in just a moment. I think the bigger picture, I really believe that the bigger picture is this. They so corrupted the human race or they attempted to corrupt the human race. I believe that the purpose of that was to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world, becoming a man and dying for mankind. He did not come into the world to, to die for demon men. He came to die for mankind. I think that was anything Satan could do to usurp the plan of God. And for that reason, the whole world is going to be destroyed. We'll talk about that next week. But don't miss the point here. The point is that highly exalted angels cannot get away with defying God's authority. And therefore, no one else is going to get away with defying God's authority. So, Rod, I thought angels could not marry, in case you're asking this question. What did you, what you're saying, are you saying they married these women? Listen, when Jesus is asked the question about marriage in the resurrection, he's talking about something that happens in heaven when he says, men are going to be like, there's not going to be any marriage in heaven. It's going to be like the angels in heaven. This is talking about something that takes place on the earth. They were able to take on human form and function in this way. So, don't want to distract you too much from that, but go to the next part of that verse. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 2 and look again at verse 4. I want you to see a couple other things here before I make some points and close this out this morning. I want you to see how God judged them. This is interesting. How did God judge these angels for this sin and defying his authority, defying his plan, attempting to usurp his plan? But he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. In response to their sin, for going after strange flesh, for leaving their abode, God cast them into hell. And I would just caution you, that word hell there is not Gehenna. That's not the normal word for hell. That's Tartarus. It's the word for, it's a word that came out of Greek mythology, actually. Out of mythology, actually. It's not that he's trying to impose the mythology on the Bible. It's more that that was, had become a common term that everybody used, Jews and Greeks used, when they referred to a compartment in hell. When they referred to a place called the abyss. It's not, it's not the lake of fire. It's a compartment of hell 
because they're reserved for judgment in that place. So we're not talking about hell in its entirety. We're talking about a compartment for the worst offenders. That's where they are now. And that would have been a term, it was like a pit of darkness, chains of darkness. Jude says, eternal bonds under darkness. That's where God sent these fallen angels who committed this sin. Keep in mind, there are other fallen angels or demons very active in our world today. These guys are out of commission. They too will one day face a judgment. Revelation chapter 20. We'll see that. I'll point that out to you in just a moment. But do you remember when Jesus was healing the guy or casting demons out of the guy in the Gerizines? He was casting out demons. This guy was running around, no clothes on, just going crazy. And um, the, demon sh he shout, the demons shout out to him, what do you have to do with us? Son of man, what do you have to do with us now? Uh, don't, don't torment us, he says. Jesus asked what his name was. He says, my name is Legion, for there are many of us. And they were begging him, don't throw us into the abyss. That's what we're talking about. That compartment. Chains of darkness. And so he throws it into the pigs. Get deviled ham. You've heard the stories point is, um, don't do to, you, do to us what you did to those fallen angels in Genesis 6, basically what he is saying. See the word reserved for judgment? That's because it's a temporary place. That's a temporary place. Um, the abyss is not the end for them. Tartarus is just a compartment holding them for the eventual judgment of Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And they, along with Satan, will face that eternal hell. The Antichrist, the beast, the judgment, the white, the, uh, excuse me, the, the great white throne judgment will all be thrown into that place called hell. You know, talking on hell is never an easy subject. It's not a pleasant subject to talk about. But just... Not talking about it will not make it not be real. The reality of it will still be there no matter what you think about it or what you say about it or what you want to do about it. Hell is real because of man's rebellion and those who do not surrender their lives to Christ will end up in hell because you are an opponent of God apart from Christ. And all those who oppose God will be in hell one day. And it's very frightening. And a lot of Bible teachers even are starting to deny the existence of hell. And one of the biggest reasons they deny the existence of hell is because they just cannot imagine a loving God sending people there. Why would a loving God do that? Isn't that the biggest question you get from people when it comes to this, this doctrine? They just can't conceive of a loving God doing that. But I want to just think that through just for a moment. In addition to being a loving God, God is also a holy and righteous God. You cannot just think about one of God's attributes. That is an imbalanced view of God. Of course God is a loving God. God but He's also a God of truth. 
And he's also a God of justice. He's also a God of righteousness. His holiness and his justice demand that sin receive a just recompense. There be a payment for sin. His justice demands that. Understand that. Understand that. And that's sort of in us too. When we see injustice, we get kind of upset. Somebody's got to pay. That's, that's part of being created in his image. That's sort of in us. But his, his is on an eternal, per- perfect, infinite level. God says, the Bible says he is so holy, he is so righteous, he cannot look on sin. And he cannot violate his nature. Somehow, judgment must work in accordance with love. You must have love and judgment working together. You just can't, like I said, pick one attribute and run with that and forget all the others. See, those who deny hell do not recognize how serious sin is in the eyes of God. That's their problem. That's the problem with all humanity. We excuse sin. We make light of sin. We are insensitive to sin. We have lived in such a society that we have become almost inoculated. We don't even think about some of the sinful things that go around us. But in the eyes of a holy God, they are an abomination. We call sin shortcomings. We call sin a problem. We minimize it. We have respectable sins. It's okay, to, it's okay to be impatient with others. It's okay to be uh, um, angry with others and have outbursts of anger and all of those things. We justify all of that. Well, that's just him or that's just her. And we excuse it. So we don't understand this, under, understand God's view of sin. It's, it separates us from him. He is holy. We are not. Jonathan Edwards said that. He's he's the one that preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. He He said the reason we find hell so offensive is because of our insensitivity to sin. It's a horrible in the eyes of God. Here's the idea. When you do something against me, that's of temporal concern. I'm a temporal being. But when you sin against God, the weight of that is determined by the one being sinned against. And he is an eternal, infinite God. It's an infinite offense to him. Not a temporal one like you do to somebody else in this room. It's eternal. It's infinite. Because you're sinning against an infinitely holy and perfect God and infinite sins deserve infinite penalty. We could be in, in hell for a million years, millions of years, and never pay our sin off. We would never do enough to satisfy God's justice. We do not understand our condition. That sin is not just something we do, Sin is what we think. It's in us. Our nature is a nature of sin. It's what pours out of a man that offends him, not what goes into a man, Jesus said. It's what comes out. It's a very sobering thought. This is the reason hell exists. Remember the parable of the slave who owed his master a debt he could not pay? 
and how overwhelmed he was when he was forgiven that debt, that was a big deal, a big deal to all that debt that accumulated and all of a sudden the master says, you're pardoned, totally set free from any obligation to pay me back. And see, the good news to you and I is that though God did not spare fallen angels, he did provide a way of escape. He did provide a way of escape from judgment. He did not spare his own son. That's what we need to be thankful for. He, spared fall, he did not spare fallen angels, and he did not spare his own son. So he's the, he's the payment for our sin. I, I just can't... You know, when I sing Amazing Grace, I ask you, I, under, I hear it sing it, I hear it sung all the time. I wonder, do people really think it's all that amazing? Do people really think it's all that wonderful? If you don't realize the depth of your depravity and your sin before a holy God, you do not understand the depth of that grace and what that means. Because you and I deserve hell. And the great news and the good news of Christianity and the good news of the Bible is that Christ took hell for us. He took what we deserve. He satisfied the justice of God for us. He took on our sin. He became sin. And God judged him in our place. And it wasn't just dying on a cross and going through physical suffering. No, a lot of Jewish men hung on crosses. But no one could pay the penalty of our sin because Jesus was perfect. Jesus was sinless. Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. He was a God and he was man. He was God and he was man. It's like the judge of the universe sat up in his courtroom and said, guilty, you're all guilty of sin. And then he got off his throne and came down and paid the penalty, paid the fine for us. Our salvation is against the backdrop of hell. And it really is. I'm saved from that wrath because of Christ. I'm saved from that wrath because he took the penalty for me. That's what it means to be Savior for us. That's what it means to be the Savior, Jesus, as our Savior. We talk about that term. He saved us from sin. He saved us from hell. He saved us so we could escape God's wrath. Hell, hell is awful. It's awful when you read it in the scripture. It is a place that is no second chances. It's eternal. Uh, it, it is a place where people are tormented. It's a place of total darkness. I've heard people say, I don't mind going to hell. All my buddies are going to be there. I tell you, there's not going to be any fellowship in hell. No fellowship in hell. Your buddies are not even going to care that you're there. You're going to be, notice verse 17 of chapter 2, the black darkness has been reserved. I cannot even picture this, folks. I cannot even get the words to express this. But the Bible says it in so many places besides 2 Peter. Jesus said a lot about it. Jesus gave continual warning about it. You can say, his, Jesus' critics say, well, he was a good teacher. Well, you know what? He talked a lot about hell for those who reject him. 
I don't guess he was that good of a teacher in your mind because he talked a lot about hell. He said a lot about it. So I just say this, if you're, if you're not a Christian, this is very sobering, but you will one day face judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, judgment. It is too late if you die without Christ. It is too late. I have sat by people's beds, and I know they were going to die, and I pleaded with them to come to Christ, only to hear them reject him. Do you know how that just plays on your mind to think they woke up in hell? That is horrible. Horrible thought. And that's why we have to preach the message, preach the gospel. We don't know who's going to get saved. We don't know who God's going to call to himself. We just are faithful to preach the message of salvation because it's about salvation from a horrible, horrible reality and destiny that waits those who oppose God. And we were once there. We know. We were once there. We were once those who opposed God. So we do it with love, and we do it with pleading, and we do it with concern. I just say to anyone here this morning that does not know Christ, that that is what awaits you. God did it to angels in the past. God did it to the whole civilization in, in Noah's time, and God did it to two cities, and God will do it again. And he's doing it right now. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Everybody knows that verse. It's written all over football stadiums. It's everywhere. I just wonder how many understand what that is saying. Perish versus eternal life. And that's why this table is so wonderful this morning. For you who are Christians, you can praise God for your salvation. You're eternally grateful to him for what he has saved you from. You take these elements today, think about that. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me from hell. Thank you for saving me from the judgment that I deserve. Thank you for rescuing me from the pit. Thank you for redeeming my life from the pit. That's what Christ does. Let's pause for a few moments and then Doug or Ben will come forward and lead us in communion. Father God, we thank you. We praise you for these truths this morning. God, this is sober to us. God, this is heavy to us. This is not a fun thing to talk about, but it's a reality. It's the whole reason Christianity even exists. It's because of a place called hell and judgment that awaits those who reject you. It's the whole reason, God, we come to this church and preach the gospel. It's because there's a place called hell. It's real. It's the reason Jesus came into the world to save us from the wrath of God to come. We love you and thank you for this time today. I just ask God, if anyone is here that does not know Christ, I pray they would trust him, cry out to him for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.